The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. I'm Stephen Merchant. I was the co-creator of the British version of The Office with Ricky Gervais, and I'm an executive producer on the American version. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another installment of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host. Brian Baumgartner. Now, today, I am thrilled to present you with a guest from across the pond over in jolly old England, Mr. Stephen Merchant. Stephen was the co-creator of the original British version of The Office. He, along with Ricky Gervais. Now, what the two of them did with that show was truly groundbreaking and obviously was the inspiration and basis of our show. But they have also had a huge influence on comedy in general, both here in the U.S. and in the U.K., where, based on their accents, I'm guessing they are from. So, you know, when we were setting up these interviews, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, I might get a a free trip to London out of this, right? I mean, I've, I've got to meet with Ricky and Steven in person. Of course, I, I got to go to London. And then uh, a global pandemic happened. So sadly, that was not going to happen. But I feel very lucky uh, that we got to speak by phone from our respective homes. I, I think you guys are going to love this one. So without further ado, my tallest friend, Stephen Merchant. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. How are you doing? You know, I mean, as well as anyone can be expected to, you know, given the uh, 
crazy circumstances. Yes. You're you're in London? I'm in London and uh same lockdown rules apply here as they apply the rest of the world. And uh yeah, just you know, pottering around. I mean in quite a sort of relaxed outfit. I I think the demarcation between my sleepwear and my daywear is very very blurred. <laughs> yes, I know. The people who get dressed up to go to work at home, I don't understand those people. I do encourage at least showering before you start working. You th- at home. really? Yeah, that's a good idea. I think it's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, it's probably good. <laughs> um, how did you know Ricky before you guys started the office, or, or how did that come about? Well, so I met Ricky Gervais at a radio station here in London. I had wanted to get into radio. I always thought that being like a radio DJ seemed like a very easy job. You could do maybe two hours a day, and then you would give you a lot of free time to do other stuff, whether it was writing or stand-up or whatever other aspirations I had. So I was keen to get into radio. And I um, I was quite young. I was in my early 20s, and I sent my resume to various radio stations, and no one cared. Right. But a new radio station was launching in London, and one of the guys who happened to read my resume was Ricky, who was, had just got a job there. And he had never had any experience in radio, and it's somehow sweet talked his way into a job there. <laughs> as get this, the the head of speech, the head of job s- title, the head of speech. I mean, if you've ever heard Ricky string a sentence together, often it's incoherent. So I don't know how he got that gig. Right. So I, he immediately decided he needed an assistant, and so I was available and keen and eager, and and so he called me up for an interview, and we hit it off, and he and I started working at this radio station together. Right. He needed an assistant, but really he needed someone to actually teach him speech. Oh, 100%. And also someone who, as he himself admitted during the interview, someone who will do all the work for me. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of eager and I didn't have a job. And I had done a little bit of sort of amateur radio and student radio. So I had a little bit of an understanding of it. And so, you know, we, we hit it off very quickly. Similar sense of humor. And within... A short while, we were sort of actually hosting a radio show together on, on the air and just had a good, easy rapport, you know, and, and a similar sensibility. And and we sort of very quickly realized we, you know, we had sort of a, a chemistry. Right. And then you, obviously, you, you started working together. What were the influences for you at the time to create the UK office? Well, at the time in the UK, there had been a number of shows on the BBC and other networks that were fly-on-the-wall documentaries about very everyday subjects. Like there was a there was one about a driving school. A driving school, yes. And it was, yeah. And so, you know, it was just following normal people doing driving lessons and, and driving tests. And this kind of had caught a wave of, of popularity in the UK. And so when we did our version... We had those sorts of shows in our mind. And one of the unusual things about those shows was that often, particularly when they returned for like a second season, the people within them had sort of become moderately famous, right? right? So they were those first kind of reality TV stars. And and they started to act differently in front of the cameras (laughs) or they were aware of the cameras. And so I think that was something that was always informing us. You know, the idea that this documentary team were following this person in the in the case of David Brent, played by Ricky, who who was also aware that he was being filmed, and so therefore was trying to give over a version of himself that he thought the world would love to see. And of course, what he didn't realize was they were actually looking at him and finding him interesting for different reasons than those that he intended. Right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, now this skips ahead like, you know, 15 years or whatever, but it's very interesting you know, that's what, one of the things that Greg Daniels always said was that for the characters on the American version of The Office, if they ever saw themselves, like if it was ever released, it would change everything. Right. Well, in the in the British version, we did, because the British version had fewer seasons, we did, when we returned for some Christmas specials towards the end of the run, we did actually play with the idea that the characters had seen the documentary, it aired and that they had various, or particularly the case of Ricky's character, had dis- disgruntlements about the way they'd been portrayed, which was often the complaint you'd hear from real reality people, right? That, you know, oh, they cut it in a certain way, they made me look like a fool. <laughs> right. And um, so we were playing with that idea. And I guess you had it with sort of MTV's The Real World, I guess, did it, was one of the pioneers. And in the UK, there was that show Big Brother, which I know is still on in various versions all over the world. 
and that just kind of hit the airwaves as well. And those people were coming out of this this house as reality TV stars. So it was a big cultural thing at the time. Right. Were there specific comedies or other television that sort of informed the sensibility or the sense of humor that you were looking at at the time? Well, certainly This Is Final Tap was a big influence. And the Larry Sanders show was something that we often referenced. And there's actually been quite a few, if you like, fake documentaries in movies over the years, but there have been fewer of them on TV, it seemed to us. And, and you know, in a way, because it, it, it sort of originated because I happened to get a job at the BBC. I was worried in my radio job with Ricky that we might end up getting fired, which indeed we did. So I had jumped ship and I joined the BBC. And while I was there, I had a, a training exercise and they gave me a camera team for a day. And they said, you want to go and film something? And I went off and went to Ricky and I said, let's film something. And what we filmed sort of became a prototype of The Office. And one of the reasons we did that in a documentary style was because um, it was quick and easy. You know, it didn't, it didn't need to have um, all the kind of polish and refinement that you get on regular TV. So in a way, we, we slightly fell into this format through circumstance. But because we pursued that and we became very obsessive about the reality of this world and where would the cameras be and how would the, the people act in front of the camera if they knew it was watching them? Would they be honest? Would Tim say to Dawn, Jim and Pam, would they, would they be honest with each other about their feelings for one another? Well, of course not, because the cameras are in their face and they don't want to reveal their hidden secrets. And so it sort of started becoming its own thing, which I think felt at the time quite new on TV. But it wasn't sort of like a, you know, a grand design. We didn't sort of sit there and think, ha, what's fresh and new? It just, all these things kept suggesting themselves to us because we were trying to make it feel as realistic as possible, as though you could stumble on the TV uh, network and you'd find it and you might think it was a real documentary. In fact, funnily enough, after the first episode aired, I was on a train and obviously people had no idea who I was. I was just a writer. And these two women were talking on the train and I was sat next to them and they said, um, one of them said, oh, did you see that documentary on TV last night about this crazy guy in this office? It was hilarious. <laughs> and the other woman said, well, no, I think, I think that was a, a new comedy. And the first woman said, oh, well, it wasn't very funny then. Um, which I, I didn't understand. But, but what was interesting was that she had been fooled for a second into thinking it was a real thing, which was the biggest compliment that we could, we could hope for. Right. I, I mean, I remember hearing that a lot over here. Did, how was it received early on? I think it was sort of, it had very low viewership initially. Um, I think there'd been some good critical notices here and there, um, but no one was really watching. I think it went on in the summer which is not a prime TV time in the UK. And I remember they had done a, we found this out many years later, but they had done a, a test screening for the general public and it had got the lowest test score ever. The only thing that, that beat it, that got the lowest test score was women's lawn bowls. Oh my. It's a very specific game played <laughs> by, I guess, women in the UK where they roll balls along a lawn. And that is the only thing that, I didn't even know that was on TV, but uh, right. that had scored lower than the office. And yet, what happened was it just started to pick up steam. It got word of mouth recommendations from people. It started to win some awards. It was uh, rerun in the, in the winter and more people started watching it. And then the, it was the moment in time when DVDs were really big. Everyone started buying DVD players. And yes. so I think that it started selling a lot of DVDs because I think people were like, oh, I can buy that guy I know in the office, that show called The Office. Right. And so, and right. so solely we sold so many DVDs because it was called The Office and people have a lot of work colleagues they need to buy gifts for. <laughs> so um it uh and then it and then it just became a kind of here in the UK it became a little mini phenomenon. Yes. Well, in the states too. We were getting I remember right. there were DVDs coming over but the DVDs in the UK were different than so you had to make sure you got an American one that would play in an American player. Right. Yes, of course. Yes. My sister had an early one who was over there, but yeah, I, um, did you think that adapting the show when you started to first hear about this guy, Ben Silverman, maybe wanting to adapt it for the U S did you think that was a good idea? Well, I remember Ricky, I was, we must've been editing something cause Ricky, I remember came in the editing suite. He said, I just ran into this guy called Ben Silverman or Ben Silverman had tracked him down and had called him and he'd had this initial meeting about doing a version for the United States. And I remember 
saying at the time, oh, well, that would be great, but the chances of that working are very slim. I, when I was a kid, I was a real fan of TV and comedy. I read a lot about it, and I knew a lot about American comedy, and I knew that they had tried to adapt very successful British shows for America, and many of them had failed for one reason or another. And so I was aware that the success rate was very low and that, and that we shouldn't get too excited about this as a sort of potential next phase of our careers because I just, I just thought, well, it's probably not going to work out even with the best will in the world. So why not? Let's let them do it and, you know, good luck to them and it would be fun. And I was a big fan and I'm a big fan of American comedy and, you know, certainly a big influence on us was like Cheers and the, the idea of, you know, the Cheers bar is this kind of surrogate family, which is very much what The Office is I guess in many ways. And yes. so um, we were excited about the idea of it being on American TV and having an American version, but but also very realistic that it, it seemed unlikely it would, it would succeed for whatever reason. Yes. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So Ben Silverman approaches you about adapting the series for America. Do, do you remember the first time you met Ben? I don't think anyone can forget the first time they meet Ben Silverman. You know, he is a sort of, as you well know, a kind of force of nature. Yes. Um, just, yeah, it's like a man who has drunk, you know, 15 espressos just directly before the meeting to just really get himself awake. And um, he's off and running and he's, 
whenever they do movies about Hollywood, they always have like a producer character who's like, it talks up, talks up a mile a minute, you know, and we're going to make you, we're going to make you stars, kid. And he's kind of like that. You know, Ben is like the kind of Hollywood producer cliche that you see in movies. And yet, listen, it works, you know, he, he's dynamic and he, and he got the thing moving. And it seemed like, you know, before we knew it, we were having meetings in the US, sitting down to talk with potential showrunners and, and, and we were off to the races. Yeah. Did you, so, you know, you, you trust this guy, Ben, and you meet Greg and you feel like he understands it. Was there a certain point that you thought that it might work for American audiences or were you still being sort of realist and, and skeptical that, that it would translate? You know, we were very enthused by Greg and Greg came to London and he sat with us and we kind of dissected the British version and we tried to explain, you know, what, you know, the kind of socioeconomic standing of all the characters so he could kind of get his head around where they would be equivalent in the US, where would, uh, you know, Scranton replace his slough and all these other things which he had to kind of understand. And he was very sensitive and thoughtful about that stuff, which is exciting for us. But then it was obviously then you casting and could they find the guy that would replace Ricky? And so I just remember each step of the way we were kind of not suspicious or nervous, but just thinking, Oh, this will probably evaporate. Right. Well, and the show struggled, you know, early on for, you know, people didn't get it. And it was so unlike anything that was on television and in America, we didn't have also the shows that you were sort of directly mocking, right? There was like, <laughs> You know, MTV's the real world, right? But those were all about sexy young people. There wasn't driving right. school or or shows like that 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 you know it was sort of directly mocking. And and I heard a story as well that you know when we came back and we were going to come back for a season two, and they only offered six more episodes, and it certainly looked like they were, you know, because Steve had forty year old version, they were sort of keeping us on life support because they didn't want to look like idiots, but they still didn't believe in it that NBC said, okay, you can do six, but you have to cut the budget and everybody has to take less. And Ben went first to you and Ricky and thought you guys would say like, no, like this is, this was the deal that we made, but that you, Greg, Ricky, everybody said, no, let's give it a shot. I mean, do you remember, was that just based on you wanting the show to go on? Or did you at that point think that there was something that was brewing there? I definitely remember thinking I was very pleased with what Greg and everyone had done in that first season. But I do remember thinking that I actually wanted them to break away from the British version more. I still felt there was a little bit of a feeling of like clinging on to some of the vibes or elements or, or trying to be a little too faithful to us. And what was exciting was the more that the show was moving away from the British version. And I think whether it was a conversation with Greg or, but I certainly felt that that was a plan that was starting to brew for the second season. And I was very keen and I know Ricky was just to kind of, you know, we, we liked everybody and we wanted the show to do well and, it, and, it, and whatever we could do to help and keep it on the air was important to us. I mean, the funny thing for us, you've got to remember is that we were here in the UK. So this was before um, streaming services. So we only saw the episodes on like DVDs because they had to mail over to us right? and we would watch them. And you know, what was weird to me was that when we did our version, we were so involved that obviously we, never got to kind of enjoy it as a viewer. You know, we only ever enjoyed it, uh, you know, in little fragments here and there. Right. But when we got sent these DVDs from America, it was like someone had designed this show that was like on our prototype and we were getting to enjoy it as fans. You know, we would just sit there and, and laugh and enjoy it. And, and it was weird. It was like some kind of weird competition where you write in, hey, would you make a show about this? And they sort of mail it to you every week. <laughs> you know? um, and so we were very keen, just as fans, we were keen to have it keep on the air. So you liked it. You 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 liked I it. I liked it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought everyone was great. And uh, honestly, I was, I was all in. Yeah. In season two, you know, one of the things that, you know, was done, you talk about veering from the British show. And I think a, a major thing that happened there in season two was the decision to soften Michael Scott, right? To not make him exactly like David Brent. I mean, David Brent to me is a genius character that had a shelf life, right? Like after 12 episodes, it's hard for him to still have a job, right? And to have the show, con <laughs> to, to have the show continue, 
you know, softening and, and bringing out more of the humanity of Michael Scott. Were you in support of that? Um, well, it's funny because I think, again, it goes to what the traditions are in our two countries in terms of comedy. And I think for years in the UK in particular, there's been this long tradition of TV comedies celebrating losers and sort of laughing at losers, often losers who have a slightly malevolent quality or a selfishness to them. So I think back to in the, in the 60s, the, the biggest TV star in the UK was a guy called Tony Hancock, whose character was a kind of sort of failed actor who was kind of snobbish and would happily, you know, screw someone over for an opportunity. And that was, that was a show that cleared the streets when that was on, you know? Right. And then uh, John Cleese's Basil Fawlty in the 70s, the kind of sort of uh, obnoxious hotel manager. So there's a long tradition in the UK of slightly unlikable leading characters in comedy. A plus combined with the fact that somehow in the UK we tolerated that bittersweetness, that melancholy. I mean, there was a show on that was a big show in the UK when I was growing up called Whatever Happened to the Likely Lads. And it had a theme song. And the opening lyrics of the theme song of this, oh, this is a sitcom, remember, were, was, um, oh, what happened to you? Whatever happened to me? What became of the people we used to be? I mean, it was all about failed opportunities and, and missed chances and right. li- lives, a life that could have been lived that never was. So there's that sort of tradition in the UK. And I think tr- traditionally in the US, that has not been so much the case in network TV. And when you think of Friends, the Friends theme tune, for instance, is very different. Yes. You know, I'll be there yes. for you, you'll be there for me. Yes. So, so I think it seems sensible to me that if they could rewire the office at all, it would just be to, to maybe downplay some of those more sort of cynical, sour British elements and, and just dial up a bit more of that American can-do, bright optimism, which I felt they did without, I think, losing the fundamental DNA of what makes the show work. Right. Mike Shore specifically talked about Greg mentioning the show in season two could exist exactly the same as this, as in the season one. 90% of the episode could be exactly the same, but just at, you know, 10%, of just a little bit of hope, just a little bit of, of positivity for Michael Scott to, to make people at least potentially see some good in him, whether it's giving him a love sure. interest, you know, you finding out he's actually, he's actually good at his job in a way, you know, like those kinds of things. Well, I also think what both of the characters have in common though, is that behind all of the things which make them kind of dislikable, unlikable, they're not bad people. They're sort of just they're needy people, right? And that's yes. their great weakness is that they want to be your friend, but they also want to be your boss. And that's the thing which I think is what you, when you dial into that, I think what you know Steve Carell managed to do and, and the writers did was kind of bring that out more, bring out that kind of, that he's a little boy really in a world of adults. And once you dial into that and you see that there is a kind of, lonely sweetness behind it all then i think you start to kind of really root for the character and i think steve in particular has such a likable quality that the more they could lean into that part of steve then then the, then the more popular i think the character became yeah well you you know you co-wrote the convict you directed customer survey and in both of those episodes actually that we see a very vulnerable side to michael scott and it's interesting that those two episodes were two that you worked on a lot that in the convict that he's upset that his employees think that prison is better than his office <laughs> and you start to feel right, right. sorry for isn't him. Isn't it yeah. ironic? Isn't it ironic that, I mean, I know I don't want to sort of play, you know, partisan politics, but I mean, I think whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you'd have to admit that there is a great deal of that in, in the current president of the United States. And, yes. you know, Trump has, this weird neediness to be loved, but also feared and respected, right? And and it's a very weird mix, and it never leads to happiness because there's such a dark well that however much validation you get, it doesn't matter how many good reviews you get, they'll only obsess about the one bad review. And I think that's sort of what Michael Scott and Donald Trump share. And, you know, and I think that's the thing which always has, made me find him so funny as a character because there's this never-ending well of neediness and you <laughs> just keep you can keep troweling in the 
compliments and the praise and the laughter, and it will never be enough. Right. And for whatever reason, I just find that both adorable and hilarious at the same time. Less adorable in the case of Donald Trump, but you <laughs> take my point. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, talking about politics, but not talking about politics, I mean, the British office itself started with the premise of redundancy, right? Like it's something that's a, a serious issue for people. I mean, the idea of, of not yeah. having a job and, you know, the American office in the end examined that as well, but also took on serious social topics, gay issues, healthcare, race relations, uh, small businesses going under corporate greed, uh, you know, by, by the end of our run, looking at the financial crisis was looking at real issues. How did you feel like that played out in the American version? I think our starting point had always been just being true, making true observations about our experience of office life. And we had worked in offices. So we were trying to kind of be particularly um, accurate about that, the way people interacted, the behaviors, the strange little training exercises you had to do and the and the sort of bureaucracy of it and the fact that this group of people were just arbitrarily brought together and were then forced to sort of get on. And as we said in one of our episodes, you know, you spend more time with those people than you do your own friends and family. And so that was, I think, the jumping off point for us was like, could we make something that felt very truthful and people recognized their working life in the show? And I think what you guys were able to do because of the sheer run of your show was just broaden that observation out beyond the, the sort of parameters of the office into those bigger ideas of, you know, of relationships and, and marriage and career and, and, and how the bigger world impacts on the smaller world. And, you know, and, and obviously they were able to expand the uh, repertoire of the characters. And so, you know, all of the characters, including your own, were sort of able to be explored and deepened. So it's just, I mean, it, one of the things I've always loved about American shows is you just have so much more breathing space and airtime to just really delve into everything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. office, you know, as you created, might be the greatest example in television history of cringe comedy. How would you define cringe comedy? I think one of my great flaws is I, it never occurred to me in a way that this, this cringe comedy thing would, would be a label. <laughs> it was not an intention to make people squirm. It was, it was just that for us, it was so much funnier when someone who was trying to be funny, for instance, said a joke and then you just heard the silence and then you just sat in the silence <laughs> for as long as possible. That, I don't know why Ricky and I just found that so funny. <laughs> and like, for instance, there was a thing we used to say, uh, there was, it, so often if you go back to old episodes of the Simpsons, you'll see like one of the Simpsons characters will give a speech in front of the town and the speech will bomb and it'll just cut to all the townsfolk, and you'll just hear, huh. And to <laughs> us, that was so funny. And so our, our attempt, after all of kind of David Brent's bad jokes, was just to sit in that uncomfortable silence. And that just made us die with laughter. And it was only when we started hearing from people, oh, that made me feel really uncomfortable, or I had to watch it through my fingers. Only then did it occur to us, oh, maybe this is not always as enjoyable for people as it is for us. Um, and I think maybe it was like, I think if you work on a horror movie, because you know the blood is fake and the knife is not real, you can just keep adding more violence and more bloodshed, right? And you go, ha ha, this is great. And then when you watch it with an audience, they're like, this is horrible. And um, I think for us, it was a bit like that. Like we just, it was so funny to us to just keep turning the screw and making this world uncomfortable that we, it didn't occur to us that people would find it cringeworthy um until they started telling you to yeah and then of course we just doubled down then we're like oh well now we're now we're gonna really lay it off well right like there is i mean just calling a spade a spade right like there is a difference between trying to tell a joke that bombs or the simpsons speech and you know like a joke i can't remember the character but i just heard this recently it was pulled up but like a character telling david brent she's going on holiday and he says, exploring yourself. Like, you, that's, <laughs> right. that is more than just, that is, there's well, I a, guess, I guess, but I think it was just, it was just staying true to the character and this kind of, this neediness and this attempt to be liked and this attempt to make connections, but also like slightly lascivious or, I mean, the big problem for him, for the David Brent character, to some degree, Michael Scott, is they just didn't know when to shut up, right? Or they just didn't know what to say. Right. And they were all, but they, they always had to be talking. You know, sometimes silence is golden, but not for them. They just have to speak and they think they are great joke tellers. They think they're great at conversation. They think they have great personalities. They want to show off for the cameras that are filming them. And so they never shut up. And it's one of the great disparities between people who are like that. They, they just don't realize how they're coming across to the world, right? So again, to go back to Trump, Trump thinks he's killing it. Every time he opens his mouth, he thinks he's crushing it. He never goes back and thinks, oh man, I, some of what I said there was really garbled and gobbledygooky and that didn't make much sense. <laughs> he's not thinking that. He's thinking, why didn't they love that? That was a great speech. What's wrong with them? Right. And that's the weird gap between those people is that they can't see themselves as the rest of the world sees them. So to me, it makes perfect sense that those people would, would say those things. Right. And yes, it is uncomfortable, I guess, because those people are uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's that in real life we just sort of tolerate them or we walk away or we ignore them. And, and in the TV world, we just force you to sit and watch this person. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it goes to the idea that they just, that both characters are truly just misguided in their approach. And certainly, you know, Michael Scott is played by Steve Carell is, is was one of my favorite jo I've told people one of my favorite jokes that we ever did on the office was 
Michael Scott really trying to have a bonding moment with Oscar and really wanting to, to understand, you know, his way of life and, and asking him what term would be less offensive than Mexican, than calling him Mexican. And Oscar's saying, there's nothing offensive about Mexican. He's like, yeah, 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 no, sure. But like, what's something less offensive than to call you Mexican? And to me, that is like, like he truly just doesn't understand. He's not trying to be, he's trying to be woke, right? Or PC and he just doesn't get it. But that moment of cringe is like, oh. But I think it, it, you know, it in some ways predated this conversation that everyone has now about sort of woke culture and appropriation, all these other things. And at the time, certainly when we began our version, it was the beginning of sort of political correctness in the workplace and political correctness being a very big buzzword and people, there were certain terms that supposedly you weren't allowed to use anymore. And that, you know, in schools, you couldn't refer to the blackboard, you had to refer to the chalkboard and, right. you know, and then all these different rules and the manhole cover couldn't be called that. It had to be called maintenance cover and, and there was a lot of sort of uh, reaction to that and people saying, well, you're, you're policing us and you're policing the way we speak. And so there were a lot of people sort of trying to be woke before they, that term was existing and just not understanding and, and failing. And the reason they failed was because you shouldn't have to try. You should just talk yes. to someone like a person and you shouldn't see their color or their sexuality or anything else. And that was the problem. That was why they were hung up is they couldn't, they couldn't see them as anything other than a gay person, a Mexican person, right. you know, uh, a person of color, whatever. They couldn't see beyond that. That was, and so they, their heart may have been in the right place, but they were they were still treating people as other, right? And as long as you do that, you're doomed. Yes, I heard something recently that I did not know that before Greg decided to oversee and come back for the last season, he asked you to show run. Is that true? Uh, I remember, yes, I remember him talking to me about the idea of being involved with those latest seasons or that last season. Yes, and I and I was very flattered, and that would have it would have been enormous fun. I think for me, it was probably like it would have been going back to the well of something, you know, perhaps you know too late, or I moved on in my head, or for whatever reason, I think I just felt like it would it would just be weird, or I just wouldn't, I didn't feel like it would be the right move for me. But my God, it would have been a blast. Yeah. I mean, directing that episode of Customer Survey was one of the most fun I've had in, in all of my career. I mean, I was only really around for a handful of weeks. But just being in the writer's room for the first couple of weeks and then on the floor with you guys, I mean, it was just so much fun. I mean, it really was. But in a weird way, I didn't have the kind of responsibility that you'd have if you were showrunning. You know, I could kind of dip in and, and just be part of the fun without as much of the responsibility. How was the writer's room different than like, say the writer's room in the UK or, or how was that experience different? Well, of course in the UK, it, traditionally, you know, uh, British comedies are normally written by one or two people. There's very rarely a big writer's room. We don't do as many episodes, so there isn't the need. So the British version of the office was just me and Ricky sitting in a room for six months, you know, hammering out the episodes. Whereas, you know, coming to the U S it was great. I mean, you've got 12 or 15 brilliant minds all throwing ideas around these jokes sort of pinging around. And I mean, to me as a sort of fan of comedy and student of comedy, particularly American comedy, just being in that environment and seeing a different way of working. And it was such a thrill to me. In fact, I remember I was sharing some stories from my own experience when I first started working and I had talked about how I worked at a call center and I'd done training and the guy who was doing the training assigned us, he would send us into one room and we'd have to make pretend to be a customer and we would call one of the other trainees who was in another room and they would be the, the person at the call center. And we as the fake customers would have to try and sort of practice with them on how they could answer a call. And I remember the, the guy wouldn't let me do it anymore because I was, I was too nasty a customer. Because <laughs> I really just, I just kept on improvising as just the worst person to have. <laughs> because I figured if I'm going to do customer training, I better deal with the assholes, right? right, you know, right. I'm going to need that information. And so I remember selling that in the writer's room. And Lee and Jean, two of the writers, went off and wrote a version of that and gave it to Jim and to Dwight and Michael, and, and they put that in the show. And so that was, that, I remember that being a real highlight of sort of this weird little fragment of my life suddenly being transposed onto TV. Did you like the way that the American office ended, that the story ended? I thought, it, 
I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was lovely. Yeah, I, I thought it was really satisfying and, um, you know, no one was machine gunned down. Right. There was, you know, nothing, nothing so stressing. I also thought that, you know, when, when Michael Scott left, I thought that was a beautiful episode as well. I thought there was some really fine episodes, you know, when, when characters were leaving or when the show was really playing on the emotions. And I think, again, that's one of the things I loved about American shows was that at their best, they're like soap operas with laughs. And, and I don't mean soap opera disparagingly. I mean, in the sense that you are so invested in these characters in this world and you keep coming back and you care about them and you love them and you want the best for them and you have opinions about them. And, and that was what, you know, those nine seasons did so sweetly and so successfully, I think. And so by the time the show leaves the air, it's like these friends of yours have all moved away. I mean, it's sort of, it's sad. Yes. What are you most proud of in terms of its legacy? Honestly, you can't begin to understand when I was growing up, America and American TV was so remote to me, so distant. It was something I, I adored. I mean, I watched shows that I loved, American shows I loved religiously, and particularly sitcoms, like the ones I've mentioned, MASH and Roseanne and Frasier and Cheers and Friends. I mean, I never missed an episode. You know, I, I was there when the new one started airing in the UK. I remember watching the first episode of Friends, the, the, the evening it aired in the UK. I was with it from the beginning. I watched every episode. I, I was in, you know, and so to me, to have been involved with a show which which is that for American audiences and for worldwide audiences and is and is taken to their heart in the same way that I took shows like that to mine, that's the biggest thrill for me. It's to be part of that family of American TV comedy, you know, and, and put in the lineage of those other shows is such an overwhelming thrill for me. That's awesome. One last question. Uh, very final thing that's said in the American version of The Office is the talking head by Pam. To paraphrase, she basically says that she thought it was weird when somebody came and wanted to do a documentary on these people who worked in a paper company. But she says, in the end, I think it was a good idea because there's beauty in ordinary things. And isn't that kind of the point? And I think that, you know, Greg Daniels wrote that. And to him, that was the point. Do you have an idea of what was the point? Well, I, I think, you know, like with any good, any good art, if you can call TV sitcoms art, any good comedy and any kind of art, it's about making us feel connected as people and, and reminding us of the things which connect us and the, and the, the similarities we have. And that's, that's the great joy. That's the pleasure it brings. That's the connectivity that it provides. And, and that's why people love to laugh in a group, in a comedy club or in a movie theater, because they want they, the shared experience of laughter is unifying. So to me, that's what the show does is people, they relate to the characters or they see a version of themselves or see a version of the person they could have been, or they say, that's just like my brother-in-law. That's just like the guy I work with. That stuff makes you feel like there's other people that think like you, you know, and, and are living the world and experiencing the world like you, and it makes you feel less alone. And that's, that's why I'm a fan of stuff. And I think hopefully that's why people are a fan of this show. Steven, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me for real. I really appreciate it. Of course, I, mate. Of course. I, 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 yeah, I hope uh, you stay safe over there and stay home. And I don't know, sometime soon we'll go to another Clippers game. That would be great. That's all for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I mean, is it just me or do British people sound way smarter than other people? I, I feel smarter after hearing that conversation. Anyhow, thank you so much to Stephen for joining me. I truly appreciate it. And to the rest of you, tune in next week to hear my conversation with the other half of this dynamic duo, this comedic genius duo, Ricky Gervais. You won't want to miss that. And if you're liking this podcast, well, don't forget to subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app you were using. I don't know, maybe even leave us a review. Rate us highly if you're feeling inspired. But until next time, everybody, please have a great week. 
The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.